We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. So, welcome to another episode of The Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. With me today is Kenneth Williams, a retired 35-year veteran of the Federal Bureau of Investigation out of the Phoenix office, who worked in counterterrorism and who would later write an electronic cable known as the Phoenix Memo, warning of suspected terrorists training at aviation schools across the country. The cable was largely ignored, but proved prophetic after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. He also testified before the United States House of Representatives in the United States Senate regarding terrorism matters and cooperated with the 9-11 Commission. And in 2018, started assisting 9-11 victim families in their suit against the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Mr. Williams, thank you for coming on. Well, thank you, Adam, for having me. Well, I'll start off real simple. How did your career in the FBI begin? Well, you know, before the FBI, I was a police officer in the city of San Diego for several years. And I actually had a sergeant come to the lineup one day and said, hey, look at, you know, not much career advancement opportunity with the San Diego PD at the time. And I had always shown an interest with the FBI. So I tested for the bureau and uh, passed the test and received an appointment letter and took the appointment. And uh, upon graduating Quantico, uh, where the FBI has a training academy, I was assigned to the Phoenix Field Division in 1990. 1990. Oh, in, in, well, I mean, because Arizona seems to be like the epicenter. In, in 1986, the Afghan Services Bureau in Pakistan, it was called the Maktab al-Kidamat, um, which was the precursor organization to al-Qaeda, uh, opened its first branch in the U.S. at the Islamic Center in Tucson. Uh, a, a number of important future al-Qaeda figures are connected to this branch. Uh, Mohammed Loe Bayazad, Wael Juladin, and Wadi al-Hajj. Uh, they would be involved with the foundational creation of al-Qaeda a little bit later. How invested were the FBI in counterterrorism back then? And were they aware of who these people were at the time? No, they weren't. Uh, unfortunately, back in those days, uh, the number one priority for the FBI uh, was counter drugs, uh, narcotic investigations, drug investigations, uh, cartel investigations, Mexican cartel investigations. Uh, the Bureau's uh, uh, number one priority was to interdict that, penetrate that, uh, seize the drugs, arrest the drug dealers, the drug traffickers. Um, in hindsight, it just it gets me angry that we every government agency was doing that back in the day. We have a whole separate government agency, as you're well aware of, the Drug Enforcement mm -hmm. Administration, whose sole charter is to do that. Uh, but the FBI was also very heavily engaged in that at the time. So to answer your question, we weren't really monitoring those guys. To give you an idea of where we were back in those days, 
that you're referring to uh, with the Afghan uh, Services Bureau being opened up at the ICT and in Tucson, uh, there was two agents working this stuff back in the days. It was me who covered the Phoenix area all the way to the northern border of Arizona, and then another agent by the name of Paul Spaniak that was working from Tucson to the southern border. So there was two agents working counterterrorism matters back in that day, responsible for the entire state of Arizona. So we were we were responsible for everything. And Paul, during those time periods, was uh, heavily engaged in an Irish Republican Army case where the IRA was uh, accumulating explosives in the Tucson area from abandoned mines and so on and so forth and transporting them across the country in a Greyhound bus to uh, the Florida area for shipment over into Northern Ireland. So he was preoccupied with that. Well, I was preoccupied with everything from Phoenix North. So we weren't aware of those guys. Um, when it comes to Wadi al-Hajj, uh, he was linked to the killing of a liberal imam in Tucson, uh, Dr. Rashad Khalifa, uh, who once preached at the Masjid Tucson. Um, he was found murdered on January 31st, 1990, in which Wadi al-Hajj was suspected of being involved, but wasn't charged. What made the FBI suspicious about Hodge in the first place? Well, you know, I, I, I believe, you know, I, I've, I've written about that, that murder uh, down there uh, post 9-11. And we looked into that. And I would, I, I would argue uh, with you that that was probably the first uh, murder committed in the United States mm. by what, what went on to become Al-Qaeda. And uh, I believe uh, Khalifa was the imam of a, of a sect of Islam called United Submitters International. And basically... The way that organization has been described to me by former informants and through my own research and reading is they were very, uh, uh, they were considered apostates by Sunni Islam and Shia Islam because they were more into astronomy and things like that as related to Islam. And, and the hardcore Sunni Islamic extremists, Salafis, Wahhabis, uh, considered that belief system to be counter to what they believed in, and they considered Khalifa and his followers to be apostates. And so, you know, we now know what happened to him, and, and we believe that that hardcore group of uh, Wahhabi Salafis in, 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 in Tucson decided to, to take care of that guy. Right. And incidentally, also, um, in uh, November of that year, I think in December, uh, Rabbi Mayor Kahani was actually killed by El Said Nosser in New York. Um, mm-hmm. And not many people know about the murder of Khalifa. Actually, you would be right in regards to uh, the first known murder by uh, this terrorist cell that was involved in the United States. Um, you, you became involved with a former businessman named Harry, Harry Ellen, who was yes. a, Muslim, a Muslim convert and went by the name of Abu Yusuf, um, mm-hmm. who would later be an FBI, an FBI informant. Tell us how you became involved with Ellen. Well, Mr. Ellen uh, was a patriot. Uh, and he saw some things taking place in the mosque in Phoenix, the Islamic Community Center Phoenix, the ICCP, uh, located in, in the city of Phoenix. It was the largest mosque at the time in the city of Phoenix. And uh, he, he saw uh, uh, the during that time period, the primary population at that mosque were Palestinians who were very sympathetic to the Islamic resistance movement, also known as Hamas. And uh, they were very active in raising money uh, collecting funds, doing charity events, and so on and so forth, to collect funds that would go to the Holy Land Foundation for Relief and Development out of Richardson, Texas, who, uh, for your audience's benefit, was an uh, unindicted co-conspirator 
uh, in, a, in a major terrorism case. And it, ultimately, we ended up bringing that organization down for providing uh, funds mm. to, to Hamas. And so Mr. Ellen agreed to help us out with that. Uh, he has since passed away. Uh, I, I can't get into the details of what he did with us uh, because it involved other government services and other governments, uh, allied governments. Uh, but he provided a good service and, until things started to go uh, terribly wrong with him. Uh, because of our interest in him and our ability to get him close to certain individuals in, in the Middle East, uh, the Palestinian Authority, uh, the PLO, Yasser Arafat, uh, ind high-ranking individuals that were involved with Hamas, uh, the Chinese government showed an interest in him as well. And uh, they threw a honey trap at him and conducted... Uh, uh, an operation against him where, uh, you know, he actually got romantically involved with one of their agents from the Ministry of State Security. And, uh, you know, we had to terminate the operation with him. Uh, that made him a very bitter man. And uh, I, I'm sure you're going to ask the next question, but it's like he made allegations that he had reported to me and others the fact that Arabs were in Arizona Arab Muslims were in Arizona, Arab Muslim extremists were in Arizona that were learning how to fly and so on and so forth. And right. nothing, of, nothing of the sort happened with him. He was a bitter man. He got upset with the fact that he was terminated by us because he couldn't follow the rules. Uh, we don't, the FBI does not engage in honey traps like other intelligence services do around the world. We do not pay our informants to go out and sleep with targets of our investigations that's it's against FBI policy maybe may even be against the law I don't know I'm not an attorney but it's certainly against FBI and Department of Justice policy to do something like that so uh, uh, you know it would never uh, uh, occur to us to do that because it's wrong and uh, we gave him a couple of opportunities to write himself he didn't write himself so I had to make a decision to terminate uh, the government's relationship with them. And the reason why I can, uh, you know, I can't confirm uh, certain or deny certain things with this guy, but he has publicly stated himself what his role was with some right. things. So, so I'm not, I'm not divulging any state secrets by, by saying, just reiterating what he has already told the world. But he, the, the convenient thing he doesn't tell the world was that we fired him because he couldn't follow the rules. Right. right. There's what, there was one story actually that I wasn't aware of regarding the background of him and it became involving with a man from the Masjid al-Salam Mosque in Jersey City named Abu Saif, who was allegedly linked to Omar Abdel Rahman, an Egyptian cleric with Gamma Islamiyah. He is seen with an unnamed Algerian pilot who, according to Ellen, is training other Middle Eastern men to fly and that he was very distrustful of him. Could you elaborate on that? Well... Again, Mr. Ellen made these statements at post 9-11, and this was after uh, some contentious times with him. So he was, uh, to, for lack of a better description, very angry with me because, you know, his uh, honeypot dried up. You know, he was, uh, you know, we were providing him uh, 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 financial compensation for his services, and that came into an end because he couldn't follow the rules mm -hmm. and uh, we terminated his relationship. So a lot of this stuff uh, he made up. Uh, Abu Sayyaf, though, uh, you know, if you look at him, his name was Akram Abdallah, Akram Musa Abdallah. Uh, his nom de guerre was Abu Sayyaf and, you know, his nickname. Uh, 
but if you look him up online, you'll see that we actually ended up putting him in jail. And we're, we only charged him with providing false statements to the FBI as it related to his knowledge and understanding of the Holy Land Foundation for Relief right. and, uh, and Development. But we charged him with a terrorism enhancement section of that, that, that violation, which gave him uh, more, more uh, prison time than he would have had otherwise. And, 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 and the 1001 charge that's providing, you know, it's lying to an FBI agent during the course of, their, of an official investigation. And we were able to prove to a court of law that uh, he knowingly uh, lied to us. Uh, and uh, uh, that's why he was convicted and put into prison. But, you know, he's a very interesting character and he was connected to individuals uh, that were involved with the original bombing of the World Trade Center in February of 1993. And he, he moved into moved from the, the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area uh, immediately after the attacks on the World Trade Center. And when he came into our area of operation, uh, he was uh, uh, he was preaching a lot of hateful uh, things against Jews in the United States and showing his support to the actions of the individuals that committed the uh, atrocities on the World Trade Center and, 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 you know, back in 1993. So we opened up an investigation and, you know, Mr. Allen was part of that. It seems that there, there is a problem regarding uh, FBI informants within these cells uh, regarding either them being completely uh, disingenuous or uh, giving uh, very vague statements, false information, what have you. Um, because there was another FBI informant by the name of Orky Collins, who claimed that he was a casual acquaintance of Hani Anjur while Hanjur was taking flyer lessons. And he, he told the FBI about, um, because Hanjur appeared to be part of a larger organized group of Arabs taking flying lessons. What was your experience like with Collins? Was his information legitimate? Well, again, Mr. Mr. Collins was, was another individual uh, who was disgruntled because he was also let go. And, you know, again, I, I can only, you know, he had already admitted to what he did in his book, My Jihad, I mean, his, his relationship with the United States government. I can't get into all the details, but in my professional opinion, and I wrote about this uh, to my chain of command, that I, I actually thought that he was a double agent. I actually thought that he was dangled in front of the FBI to provide us information well, giving us the appearance that he was providing us with useful information while actually making a determination of who we were interested in, who we weren't interested in, and perhaps providing that back to the enemy. So uh, I made that statement known to people, and he was subsequently terminated uh, from any relationship with the FBI. And and uh, post that, as in the case of Mr. Ellen, he got he was bitter. And uh, he made up some allegations and he even told in his book and, and in other statements he made before his death, he's dead too, he died a couple of years ago of uh, natural causes, um, that he told me about hijackers being in the Phoenix area too. And so you got two bitter individuals that, uh, you know, uh, were, were disappointed and angry that we uh, terminated any type of association with them that tried to get their five minutes of fame after 9-11 by making uh, up statements that were untrue. Of course, we would have followed up on anything that they told us with respect to aviation, because I was already thinking about those things based upon other, other things that both of these individuals or both of these gentlemen were unaware of at the time. You know, we, we had seen some other individuals at other schools down in the southern portion of the state 
you know, that were, you know, had this radical ideology that had the, uh, that were in the United States learning about aviation related material subjects. You know, they were down, and I forget the name of the school right now, but it's down in uh, outside of Sierra Vista in Simpanal County. It's a county college. <clears throat> I can give it to you later, uh, Adam. I just don't have it in front of me. No, it's fine. But, uh, but they were learning how to, you know, build aircraft engines and repair aircraft engines. And well, I just thought it was odd that those guys were down there doing that too, given their radical ideology and given the history of what we saw, like with Libya bringing down Pan Am 103, you know, with an explosive device. Uh, you know, I was thinking this is kind of weird that these guys with this ideology are studying this type of topic, you know, it would be a great opportunity for them to to conduct an act of terror on an aircraft or to an aircraft i mean you know you always get as a terror counterterrorism investigator and every every guy and gal that works this stuff will agree with this statement you have to you have to try to get in their head and think like them you know so if you see if you see a, a jihadist or somebody with this radical ideology studying a particular subject matter we have a tendency i know i had a tendency to immediately draft uh, go to the worst aspect of things and ask myself, okay, I know this guy has this radical ideology and he's studying nuclear engineering or he's studying biochemistry or he's studying aviation related stuff. Is he doing this for an organization or at the direction of an organization? Your, your suspicions about these people are warranted because even with the San Francisco and New York offices of the FBI, they claimed that Ali Muhammad was actually not just a double agent, but a triple agent. Sure. Uh, and, and, you know, we have the case of uh, uh, Jamal Badawi in uh, yes. coast Afghanistan, who ended up killing the CIA case officers. Three of three of those individuals I, I personally knew, you know, through a, a professional uh, relationship. Uh, but he was a triple agent. And there's a good book out there. I believe the name of the book is called Triple Agent. I forget who it's authored by. Ah, yes. But they talk about Badawi and they talk about how Al Qaeda used him to give information to, I believe at first the Jordanians who introduced them to the U.S. government, and 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 these were these were individuals that were actually rolled up or killed on the battlefield and whatnot. So we call it in the intelligence business give to get. You give a little bit of information to get some more in return. So Al Qaeda was playing that game. I mean they're very they're very intelligent. They're very adept at 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 the intelligence business. I mean they do get training in that. And, and I mean, they were playing a deadly game wherein they were getting through Badawi, given the Jordanians and U.S. intelligence information uh, that was verifiable and accurate in order to enhance his bona fides and, and to make him more realistic, you know, only to bait us into a trap where they ultimately ended up killing uh, the, the, the patriots that they ended up killing. Right. I believe the author was Joby Warwick who wrote that book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, there, there, there was actually an incident in November of 99, 1999, where two Saudis, uh, Hamdan al-Shalawi and Muhammad al-Qudahin, uh, mm -hmm. who are detained for trying twice uh, to get into the cockpit of a passenger airplane flying from Phoenix to Arizona uh, to Washington, D.C. And the FBI considered this possibility that this might have been a dry run for the 9-11 attacks, in part because al-Shalawi um, al had a radical militant background who trained in Afghanistan. Was this a shared conclusion on your part as well? Or was this yeah. simply a mere case of confusion? No, I'm actually the author of that communication as well. I, I came to that conclusion 
based upon my observations of other things, and I, and I sent Washington in a communication testify before the joint inquiry and the 9-11 commission that I believed in the post 9-11 world that that was a dry run or it was at least an intelligence collection operation prior to 9-11 to, you know, send it to the planners of the planes operation, the 9-11 operation. Uh, what's interesting about these guys, and it gets underreported even by the commission and the Joint Intelligence Committee hearings, is that these guys were no dummies. I mean, they were PhD candidates in linguistics, you know, at the University of Arizona and Arizona State University. And and, and they had made, as, as, as graduate students, <clears throat> multiple trips across the Atlantic Ocean, going back to and from Saudi Arabia, going back to their homes and to the United States. And, you know, they should know, they, they, they did know, you know, that nowhere on any airplane that they've ever flown on is the air, you know, the bathroom head, you know, directly at the cockpit. And that question was never asked, unfortunately, or never documented if it was asked in the 302s that were written when they were questioned by the FBI and the Columbus, Ohio Police Department before, you know, after they were questioned before they were continued to go on to uh, Washington, D.C. What's also interesting about that is that these guys, when they got into Washington, D.C., were greeted by Saudi Arabian officials and, and uh, members of the Council of, uh, of American Islamic Relations, and they had like a little press conference on the steps of the U.S. Capitol, and they were claiming that they were being racially profiled because mm. they were Muslims, they were from Saudi Arabia, and they were Muslims. And, and you know, back in the day, that had a very chilling effect on, on, on government agencies, and, you know, uh, uh, so that I, I believe that, too, in hindsight, although I didn't testify to that at the time, I believe that too, in hindsight, was an Al-Qaeda effort to try to discourage uh, airlines and government agents and police agencies from, mm -hmm. from looking at these guys on airplanes and making a big deal if they were asking questions about how much fuel was on the airplane, how many people were on the airplane, you know, that type of stuff. Yeah, just to revert on that, uh, to, re, uh, to uh, ma magnify that point that you made, about Arab persecution, uh, the uh, El Sayed Nocer case against Rabbi America, the murder of Rabbi America Kahani, he got off on the murder, but he mm -hmm. was charged with the gun. Um, mm -hmm. And it was uh, his lawyer, um, William Kunstler, actually made that uh, a point in the, in the case regarding uh, Arab persecution in this country, mm -hmm. and it worked with the jury, actually. Sure. And to Kunstler, it was a surprise for him. Yeah. Um, I really believe they used that. I really believe they used that up, up, up to and including with, with Kudahin and Al Shalawi mm -hmm. uh, as as a defense mechanism, as a as a uh, intimidation thing. But what's interesting about those two guys, and this needs to, this is very important, because one of the individuals, a guy by the name of Ghassan El Sharbi, uh, was friends with these guys. And another individual by the name of uh, Zachariah Mustafa Supra was friends with mm. these guys. These guys came to my attention through an informant of mine who is also dead now. Uh, uh, it was not Mr. Allen. It was not Mr. Collins. Okay. But, but, but he told me this guy was also a, a former member of a terrorist organization, a bona fide terrorist organization. He told me these two guys are going to school in Prescott, Arizona, <clears throat> an aviation school by the name of Embry-Riddle University. And if you know anything about Embry-Riddle, Embry-Riddle, I, I call it like the Ivy League of, uh, uh, of uh, aviation schools, universities in the country. Our main campus is located in Daytona Beach, Florida, 
their satellite uh, campuses in Prescott, Arizona, which was the first territorial capital of Arizona. It's Cowboyville, USA. You know, Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday, all those guys used to hang out up there. Well, these two guys were living there and they were going to school, Cassano, Sharby, and Subra. Well, when we started looking at them, based upon the informant's information, the informant told us they were representing a group called the Al-Mahajarun, which was out of London, England. And the Al-Mahajarun, before 9-11, called themselves publicly the eyes, the ears, and the mouthpiece of Osama bin Laden. So these guys, these two guys were up in Cowboyville, USA, Prescott, Arizona, and they were trying to stand up a chapter of the Al-Mahajarun in Prescott. We found that absolutely incredible because that's the last place we would expect that type of organization be stood up. We would expect it at the University of Arizona because of the historical background of Al-Qaeda's presence down there or individuals that went on to become significant Al-Qaeda players down there. Or we'd expect it to see at Arizona State University, which was one of the country's largest universities. And it has a very active Muslim population right off the campus. But no, we found it in Prescott, Arizona. So make a long story short, we started an investigation on him. And uh, during the course of the investigation, we see that those two guys in Prescott are driving around in a car that is registered to Hamdan al-Shalawi. Well, fast forward to 2002, March of 2002, uh, Ghassan al-Sharbi uh, was arrested with Abu Zubaydah in Faisalabad, Pakistan. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, you know, he's a bad guy. I mean, back in the day, Abu Zubaydah was a guy that was considered like one of the most hunted men in the world right after 9-11. And so I submit to you and your audience that a guy of that stature, Abu Zubaydah's stature, is not going to let any any mutt or any low-level hanging fruit hang out with him in his hideaway when he's hiding from the world's intelligence services. So the guy was significant. So when I always think about, you know, what ifs, you know, uh, you know, I think we were on to something close when we were looking at these two guys, because these two guys went on to become the primary subjects of the memo that I wrote that went on to become called the Phoenix Memo that I authored in July of 2001, July 10th of 2001, and sent to Washington. So when I started the investigation on these guys in Prescott, it was like back in 97 or 98, and we looked at them real hard for a year, and then 99 came along. And if you remember, and if your audience remembers, in 1999, the U.S. intelligence community, the world, was concerned about Y2K. We all thought that when the clocks turned to 2000 and the computers turned to 2000, that world banking could crumble, all sorts of things. It was going to be total mayhem, none of which, thank God, happened. But we were told, I was given marching instructions to go interview these two guys in Prescott. And when we interviewed them, uh, uh, Zachariah Subra, he was Lebanese. He told me, he says, I consider you, your country, the FBI, legitimate military targets of Islam. And he considered Osama bin Laden to be a great Muslim warrior. And, you know, in his in, in their apartment, they shared a one-room apartment together up in, uh, in a Dedell Motor Lodge, which is off uh, an old state route highway in Prescott, Arizona, north of the Veterans Administration Hospital. Um, they had pictures on the wall of Mujahideen that you could tell by looking through your training and experience, you could see the background, the topography. It was winter, there was snow on the ground. These guys were amputees. They had bandages on their heads, their arms, their legs, and they were dressed in camo and they were carrying AKs and RPGs. You could tell that that was the Mujahideen in either Chechnya or Bosnia, all right? And then I could see a, also a picture of Ibn Khattab, who at the mm -hmm. time I knew was the head of the Islamic army of the Caucasus. So I said, okay, these guys are the real McCoy. So we interview them, they tell us this, and then 
right at that time period, we had a crazy guy down here by the name of Mark Warren Sands, who was lighting fires to houses under construction in the Phoenix area on mountain preserves. They butted mountain preserves. And we, we codenamed, the FBI codenamed the case, the Phoenix Mountain Preserve Fires. And basically what this guy was doing, Mark Warren Sands, was he was he was goading law enforcement with messages that he would leave at the crime scenes on these houses that he would set on fire, basically calling himself the coalition to save the preserves or coalition to save the mountain preserves. So he was given law enforcement. Uh, and at first, arson, that type of arson is not a federal crime. He, he was goading the Phoenix Police Department by saying, you know, hey, this is a domestic terrorist group that's doing this thing. So the Phoenix Police Department came to us, came to the FBI and asked for our assistance, investigated with investigative resources to help catch this guy. All right. Well, that's not my that's not what I was trained to do. But I was one of the lead counterterrorism agents back in the day during this time. So my boss moved me away from these Al Qaeda supporters up in Prescott to work this arson case because there was really some legitimate concern that Although nobody had been killed up to the time I got assigned to that case, uh, there was a possibility that somebody could get killed, whether it be a night security guy, a firefighter fighting the fire, or if the fire leapt to a, an occupied home, you know, people could get killed. So we put a full court press on that. In the meantime, all the uh, international terrorism cases were put in, on hold. So these guys were given a, a whole year. Right to do what they were doing. So that's why I'm sure the question was, was in your head, that, well, how come it took you, if you were on these guys from you know, 1999 to 2001 to write this memo, the Phoenix memo, that's why I was gone from the investigation for a whole year. So I, I what if it to death? I often um, tell, you know, wish that that guy, Mark Warren Sands, who we ultimately ended up catching and he went to prison for like 25 years. I, I often had hoped we could have charged him with something with respect to 9-11 because he took our eyes off the ball, right. you know, uh, and, and, and I, I, I what if it to death? What would have been if we, I, I'm convinced, Adam, that we probably would have seen, I'm convinced, not probably, I'm convinced that we would have seen Hani Hanjur and Nawaf Al-Hazmi in their circle of friends. Mm. I mean, because... It wasn't known until after the commission report was written that 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 Al Sharby, he's now known as detainee 682 in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. He's still there, you know, was was arrested with Abu Zubaydah. I mean, so we were close. I mean, we were up at the leadership of Al Qaeda. I mean, we were on this guy in Prescott, Arizona, and we were taking, you know, we didn't know it at the time, but we were taken off that case to ch chase this arson guy. You know, and thank God we caught the arson guy. Right. And I think the stats at the time were less than 4% of those type of arsonists get caught. All right. And we were ending the catch him. And it turned out it was had nothing to do with terrorism at all. This guy was a whack job who had some sexual fetishes that caused him to want to light fires. You know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not going to pretend to be one. But, 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 you know, that came out in his trial and his own testimony. He gave an article an interview to the Arizona Republic about a year ago, and he wanted to do a feel-good story. Research it and have some of your, your audience research this. He wanted to do a feel-good article, and the reporter's name, she's a wonderful reporter, her name is Jen Fifield for the Arizona Republic, ran with a story. And this guy was going to try to paint himself as this born-again Christian when he was in prison. Now he's, 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 uh, he's preaching uh, and proselytizing to the homeless in, in the city of Phoenix and that he's some kind of holy roller. 
Well, when we caught him, he, he was playing a holy roller back in the day before we caught him too with his local church. He was a marriage counselor. He, he was, but it really, I go, I get off. It's not a tangent because it really did have an impact on what happened with the hijackers in Phoenix because we missed them. Right. Uh, well, just to, to go back a little bit about Zachariah Subra. Um, mm-hmm. On April 7th of 2000, you actually interviewed him in his apartment. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you actually ran uh, his license plate. And the car that he was driving was actually owned by Mohammed Al-Qudahin, who yep. actually was involved with the attempted maybe hijacking or testing of security on the... Yeah, that's who it was. It was Qudahin, not Al-Shalawi. With him, it was it was Al Kudahin. So, uh, but 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 that just goes to show you these guys were all birds of a feather. You know, they were they were all they had the same radical ideology. I mean, and uh, I you know we never got to get into the real deep history of how they ever got connected. You know, uh, and I think if we hadn't been distracted for the entire year on the arson case, we would have got to learn some of those, uh, you know, answer some of those questions. Sure. Why were they interested in Subaru in any way? Why was the FBI interested? In well, because our informant came to us and said, look at these two guys at Embry-Riddle University. They're with this organization called the Al-Mahajarun. And the informant happened to be a former terrorist himself. Uh, and, and he told me, he said, this organization, you got to watch out for it. They're recruiting Mujahideen uh, to go fight for uh, uh, you know, in Afghanistan. And they're also recruiting people that uh, the food fight in Bosnia and Chechnya and, you know, and join this organization called Al Qaeda, you know, and, uh, and Osama bin Laden. So he says, these are, these are bad guys. And, you know, I used to liken this informant. I used to call him my EF Hutton. You remember the old commercials when yeah. EF Hutton, everybody listens. That was my nickname for him. I called him EF Hutton because, it, you know, the, the guy was, he, he was worth his weight in gold. I mean, uh, you know, cause when he spoke, he was spot on. So and when he told me something, I took it. You know, so, so often a lot of people get involved with us on a professional level in the community. And sometimes, quite frankly, people will make things up just to, uh, yeah. you know, make a buck or whatever, you know. But but this guy, this guy would always give us accurate information. And, uh, you know, uh, so when he when he told us about these guys, I took his information very seriously and ran with it and cooperated everything that he had told me about them. And uh, he was spot on. You know, uh, th- th- those guys were very, very interesting. And, and if you read on Ghassan al-Sharbi, he's so Zach was a Lebanese and he was in this at Embry-Riddle on an F-1 student visa and he was learning aviation security. Ghassan al-Sharbi was learning electrical engineering as it related to aviation. All right. And he was a Saudi Arabian on, in the country on F-1 student visa. So when you look at their radical ideology and look what they were studying and the type of school that they were smart enough to get into, not every schlep gets into that school. you got to have good grades and you got to pass entrance exams to get in there. I mean, these guys had it going on academically. They knew, they knew their stuff. All right. So Al-Qaeda, there would be a goldmine Al-Qaeda. You get a guy that gets an aviation security degree from a school like that. He could get a job in aviation security at any airport in the United States or any country in the world, which could then give access to Al-Qaeda operatives. You know, he could give intelligence reports on whatever airport he went to work for 
to Al-Qaeda operators or intelligence people and say, this is how you could get access into an airport. This is how you can gain access, you know, through either cleaning crews or, mm-hmm. you know, a mechanic crews or whatever. He, you know, you got to let your imagination run away with you. Like I told you earlier, when you're, when you're working this counterterrorism stuff, you got to start thinking like you're a bad guy too. And if I'm a bad guy's boss, what am I going to want him to do? How am I going to, what, what, what type of job do I want him to get to get access to vulnerabilities for me that I can exploit and kill a lot of people. All right. So, and then the second guy, you know, Ghassan Al-Shabri, who's still sitting down in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, he was learning aviation uh, or electrical engineering as it related to aviation. You know, and at that time, I was still thinking in the forefront of my head, Pan Am 103 incident was still on my mind. And I'm thinking, okay, he can make IEDs. You know, he can make any type of explosive that might bring down an airplane. Maybe he can rewire an airplane to do something you know, that makes it look like an accident. You know, you start thinking of all sorts of stuff, you know, and um, uh, and that that's why we were on those guys, you know. But again, unfortunately, it, it, we got the tr- distracted with the arson case and I got reassigned, you know, and I'm a street agent, so I got to do what the boss wants me to do. So you got to put that on what we call pending and active status, which means we didn't close the case. We're going to get back around to it while we can, while we're addressing what the command structure in the FBI office of Phoenix time thought was a more pressing threat. And that was the fires of these multi-million dollar homes that were, that were being burned down. You, you actually ran into some internal problems investigating Subra. Well, can you relate to us what that was about? Well, the invest, that was one of the investigative the internal problems was right. that I did get an argument in, into an argument with my boss and to his credit, he's a great guy. Uh, you know, he, he admitted to the uh, commission and to the inquiry the Senate inquiry that, yeah, we did have words about this and that I wanted to stay on the, the, the uh, Al Qaeda type of guys. And, uh, you know, you know, and he didn't have to do that. He manned up and he, and he, and he took responsibility for his actions, you know, and I, I don't hold him, uh, anybody responsible for that because, you know, if I'm, you know, you're in a boss position and you're getting pressure by the community to capture this guy before he hurts somebody, i.e. I, the, the arsonist, then you got to do what you got to do to get, get that arsonist off the street. And we did. And we got him and he, we put him away for a long time. But uh, in the meantime, real bad guys that, you know, and, and their buddies that went on to kill 3000 people were left unattended, you know. So that was one internal problem. The other internal problem I had was when the case was open and when I was working it before the arson case was it was it was very difficult to get surveillance support and, and that type of resources on the targets because I was competing with the drug program. So literally, and this makes me sick, too at times, you know, I couldn't get drug, I, I could not get surveillance assets on Subra and Al Sharby and Prescott because they were working a marijuana smuggling case. And now when you look around the country, you know, marijuana dispensaries are just as numerous in certain parts of the city as Starbucks are, you know, so it's like, my gosh, you know, you know, you know, 20 years ago, I'm comp- or over 20 years ago, I'm competing for surveillance resources and losing out you know, to marijuana smugglers who now, you know, marijuana is, uh, you know, all you need is a mar- medical marijuana card and you're getting it like yeah. a Starbucks coffee somewhere. So, you know, uh, that, so that's what I was competing with. You know, I literally had to go because I don't know how much you know about the functions of Bureau, Adam, or your audience does, but, you know, we have professionals that conduct uh, surveillances and they're called special operations groups. And they're trained cadre of agents that are given advanced sophisticated training on how to conduct surveillances of subjects. You know, 
where I'm an investigative agent. Sure, I can also do a surveillance, but you know, I don't have all the, the, the I really don't. You, I don't have all the skills and, and, and resources available by vehicles, specialty vehicles, aircraft, and everything else to do those type of surveillances myself. So I rely on those professionals that are trained in that field to do that job. And they do a phenomenal job. You see those type of surveillance videos that you see in the mob movies or the mob documentaries and whatnot, they're done by SOG groups, special operation groups, you know, and that's what I wanted uh, deployed against these two guys in Prescott. And I couldn't get them because they were working drug cases. So myself and a couple of other agents that are usually are working the cases and running the informants against the bad guys are now left with doing all of this work, doing the surveillance, running the informants, writing the reports, writing the wiretap applications, and then now doing the physical surveillance of them as well. So we're doing the whole package. Whereas most cases, when you when you have the resources, you can divvy it up. You know, you can say, okay, I got the surveillance assets on these guys. They're giving me reports as the lead investigator. I can read this. I can give it to an analyst. They can help me digest what all this means. You know, now I can now I can concentrate and running informants into the bad guys, and then also putting together any type of search warrants, FISA search warrants, FISA electronic search warrants, whatever search warrants I'm going to put together on the targets to get into them a little deeper, uh, very much deeper. And I didn't have the opportunity to do that. There was a big operation that happened in the summer of 2000. The FBI was conducting an operation when it was codenamed Catcher's Mitt, where approximately, I think it was 20 Al-Qaeda suspects were being electronically monitored. And one source familiar with the case says that the wiretaps had to be shut down. It became more difficult to get permission for new FISA wiretaps. Were you familiar with this operation? No, I wasn't, actually. I wasn't. I wasn't. I never had a problem, Adam, with, with obtaining the wiretaps that I got together on my uh, targets that I had out here. I mean, the, you know, the FISA, the FISA Act is, you know, uh, there's been a lot of things that have been written about it post, uh, you know, within the recent times here with uh, the FISAs that uh, were were put before a court where information was false and so on and so forth on Carter Page and those. I mean, and, and a lot has been written about FISA that makes it look like FISA is very easy to get. I can assure you and any FBI agents, current or former FBI agents that are listening to this right now will, will attest to this. They are one of the most difficult things to get. And because you have to look at it this way. When we go up on a FISA, generally speaking, we're going up on bad guys before they've actually committed a criminal act. Okay. So we're getting information from, let's say, John Doe that Mohammed Doe is involved with a terrorist organization. All right, so we go on a case. We start looking at things. I got to start building additional information, different uh, additional predications, uh, getting getting evidence of their involvement with a foreign power. So then, now I have to have specific and articulable facts, and that's what's in the statute, the FISA statute, specific and articulable facts that demonstrates to a court that my target is in, engaged in activities on behalf of a foreign power. And that foreign power has to be designated by the National Command Authority of the United States. So, I mean, if, they, if that national power or, or if that foreign power isn't a designated foreign power, you know, by the U.S. government, then I'm not going to FISA on that person. So back in the day, what was very difficult with the, and this is, might be what you're referring to, back in the day when we really 
you know, this whole Al-Qaeda thing was amorphous to us. I mean, you know, we were used to stovepiping things. We had terrorist organizations. Okay, we've got Hamas. We got Al-Gama Islamiyah. We got the, you know, the who's who and the alphabet soup of the Palestinian Liberation Organization and all the organizations that are underneath that umbrella. You know, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, and on and on and on. You know, they were all designated foreign powers. But when you got to, when you got to this before we recognized Al Qaeda as being a, a foreign power, you know, we were dealing with this amorphous group of individuals that had this same radical belief system, but no foreign power had been attributed to it. What are you going to call the foreign power? Islam? You know, people would have a cow if you called it that mm -hmm. back then. You know, you, you were attacking a religion. Okay. That's the way it was viewed. So we had a, you know, it had to be. It took a while before people recognized Al-Qaeda and that, that, that form of radical Islam to be considered a foreign power. Because back in the days of the Cold War, you know, you could look at the alphabet soup of the popular, front, you know, the Palestinian Liberation Organization and say, hey, they were being used as proxies by the Eastern European communist nations that, led by the Soviet Union to influence things in the Middle East. And that was an easy one. We can get up on those guys easy, you know, and, and then, you know, that that was that was easy. Uh, but when you start dealing with the whole new thing with this Islamic extremism, it was very difficult for the law to fit into that and to be able to get a FISA on that stuff. To give you, for example, you know, in the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, the FBI knew pretty much all of those guys and had cases on all those guys, you know, underneath different headings, whether it be Hamas, Al-Gama Islamia, it was Egyptian Jihad, you know, it, it, we, we, they were known entities. All right. But, but to be able to put them all under one umbrella and, you know, designate Al-Qaeda as a terrorist organization and a foreign power took some time for the intelligence community to catch up with that. You know, and I remember back in the days before Al-Qaeda was even Al-Qaeda. And when you started the podcast with Wadi Al-Hajj, you know, uh, Wail Jaladin and those guys being down in Tucson, I had, we had informant information coming into us <clears throat> from good Muslims that would go to mosque every Friday saying, hey, these guys are starting to talk about crazy stuff at the mosque, you know, about killing Jews and about America and the West. And when we would report that, we would get our hands slapped by FBI headquarters and Department of Justice because we were infringing upon, you know, constitutional protected uh, activity. People going to a religious institution and talking things, you know, they weren't committing a crime. So, I mean, think about that. It's hard to believe in 2021 that back in the early 90s, you know, in the late 80s, that if the F FBI agents reported on stuff that was being discussed in a religious institution would actually get in trouble for reporting that information. And, you know, we would get a hand slap and say, or get a green air tell, we used to call it from headquarters, which is something an agent would never want to see because that indicated that you were going to get in trouble for something. And, and you know, and I understand, you know, we always got to, protect our constitutional freedoms. That's for sure. That's what, that's what FBI agents do. But back in the day, you know, agents were starting to see that stuff transpire at mosques and we're going, what the hell do we do with this now? You know, it's like, what, what's going on here? We can't say this is a foreign power. This is being discussed at a religious institution. This guy isn't getting up there saying he's with the Palestinian Liberation Organization. He's, you know, they're talking purely religious stuff and justifying, you know, uh, uh, their hatred for America and their hatred for the state of Israel and other nations uh, based upon their religion, 
You know, and it's like, okay, well, a lot of people back in the day looked at that as free speech and protected speech because it was being done in a religious institution. Very frustrating. Different world. Oh, absolutely. Just to follow up on that, Ken, uh, before even the formation of Al-Qaeda, there was an Arab uh, terrorist organization at the time, um, the Abu Nudal organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was that something on the FBI's radar uh, back in the uh, late? 70s, early 80s? Yeah, yes, it was. Like you, you mentioned an individual earlier, Abu Sayyaf, who we also know as Akram Abdallah. There were some indications. We had some reporting that he was maybe affiliated with that organization as well. We never proved that one way or the other. We, we, we basically, what the organization that we said that he was involved with, that we charged him with under uh, Title 18, Section 1001, with the terrorism enhancement, uh, was his involvement with Hamas, the Islamic resistance movement. But, but back in the day before there was a Hamas Islamic resistance movement, we had also developed information indicating that he was running around with the Abu Nadal organization, you know, and, and you know, 417 and those, those guys, you know, and, and, and uh, but we were never able to prove that. We were never able to prove that, but we were able to show his nexus to Hamas very clearly. And the court and the jury agreed with us and, and put him in prison. Well, fast forward to July 10, 2001, uh, you sent a memorandum warning about suspicious activities involving a group of Middle Eastern men taking flight lessons in Arizona, as well as uh, nationwide. The memo is commonly known as the Phoenix Memo, yet it's, it's actually entitled Zachariah Mustafa Subra, IT Other, Islamic Army of the Caucus, because mm-hmm. it, fo- it focused on Subra, the mm-hmm. Lebanese flight student in Prescott, and he had connections with the terror group in Chechnya that you brought up with Ibn Khattab. Um, tell us about the history of the information outlined in the memo. Yeah. Uh, again, when the informant came to us and he said that this organization called the Amazrun was being stood up in uh, Embry-Riddle University, he said we had to keep an eye on them. And he said these two guys, Zachariah Subra and Ghassan al-Sharbi, uh, were making regular trips from Tucson, Arizona to the Phoenix metropolitan area, specifically to Phoenix, the Islamic Community Center Phoenix, and to uh, the Islamic Center uh, Tempe, uh, which Tempe a Mosque at the time was the largest mosque in, in the Phoenix metropolitan area. Mm. It's very ornate mosque, very beautiful mosque, uh, located right in the center of the campuses of Arizona State University. Uh, frequented by a lot of Middle Eastern uh, students from the Gulf and throughout uh, uh, the Muslim world who are foreign students going to uh, Arizona State University. And so if you're not familiar with the distance we're we're talking about here, it's a couple hundred mile ride. It's about 150, 200 mile ride from Prescott to Tempe and maybe about an 130 mile ride from Tempe to to Phoenix. So it is, you know, round trip wise, you're, you're, you're looking at over 200 miles. So for these guys to be making frequent trips from Prescott to the area, our area, the metropolitan area, you know, that takes some doing. And they were, and they were handing out uh, El Muhajirun literature at both mosques, the ICCP and the Islamic Center uh, Tempe. Now it got so bad at the Islamic Center Tempe, and I wish we had a really more dynamic relationship with the Muslim community in Tempe at, uh, before uh, what I'm about to tell you happened, because we would have been on it sooner, uh, that the board of directors of the Islamic Center in Tempe uh, sought a restraining order against these two guys and didn't want them at their mosque. They did not want this stuff propagated at their mosque. 
They did not want their speeches being held at the mosque. They did not want their recruitment efforts taking place at their mosque. And they actually got a restraining order against these guys, you know, and they ended up uh, not going to that mosque anymore. Now, had we had had we had a better relationship with the board of directors of that mosque back in the day, you know, they could have came to us like they would now, you know, in the post 9-11 world and said, look, at we got these two guys that are propagating this very uh, violent type of uh, ideology in our community. And we don't want that in our community. And we would have been all over that at an earlier stage, you know, even before my informant came to me and said that this is what these guys were doing, you know, and and uh, so. So that's the type of stuff that was going on. I mean, you know, and, and in my career, you know, I spent like 30 years working this stuff. I have never seen, I had never seen a mosque prior to that time, you know, and, and then even after 9-11, get a restraining order against an individual, you know, individuals from attending their mosque. It was unheard of. And I, and I still think today, anywhere in the country, that's probably a very rare event. I mean, extremely a rare event because, you know, it's a, it's a place of worship and these, these people want people to come to their house of worship and, you know, perhaps they can counsel them if they see the errors of their way saying, hey, you know, look at brother, this is not the right stuff you should be, you should be propagating. But, uh, you know, so I never saw it happen before where some, you know, the, the, the mosque leadership went out and got a legal document preventing these guys from worshiping at their mosque. So that just, that, that tells your audience that the type of ideology that these guys had. It was violent enough where mainstream Muslims wanted nothing to do with them. And I tell you, Adam, we couldn't do this work as FBI agents without the good Muslims in our country that help us out and, 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 and ferret out the bad apples from within their community. Without them, we'd be dead in the water. And, you know, you know, Americans should always remember that. I mean, uh, you know, because they are Americans, too, you know, and, and it's just, uh, you know, they, they, they don't want the enemy in their mosques any more than we want them in our in, in our in their mosques as well. So we could not do this job without them. And I applaud every single one of them that has ferred them out for me and other agents over the years, uh, ferred the bad guys out. And we could not do the job without them. So. When I when I when I, when we accumulated all the information on them, I put it forth and I put it to Washington and I said, "Hey, look at this is what we saw. The Al Mahajarun is not designated a terrorist organization. We saw Ibn Khattab on the wall. He's with the Islamic Army of the Caucasus. That was not that not designated a foreign power at the time. So what I did is I really researched and researched and I tried to draw the the the." the the linkage between the Islamic Army of the Caucasus and bin Laden, Ibn Khattab and bin Laden, you know, because Ibn Khattab was also, you know, Saudi. Mm -hmm. And 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 it flew. We were able to, We, I had somebody at Maine Justice say, yes, I agree with your logic here. You know, we are going to link Ibn Khattab and the Islamic Army of the Caucasus with the broader, underneath the, um, uh, you know, uh, bin Laden umbrella. All right, and, and we're going to get you your, your, your special authorities to continue investigation. Because in, in our world of investigations, you have two types of investigations. You have a preliminary inquiry, which gives you like initially 90 days to look at somebody to see if they are involved as actually an agent of foreign power. And if you get to that point, then you can get into a full investigation, which is, you know, we're, we're full board. All the resources at our disposal are, are, are employed and we go after the target pretty heavily. You know, but if you can't, if you can't articulate that a person is an agent of foreign power within the first 90 days, 
you can get at least one extension where you maybe they'll give you 180 days to do it. But if you can't do it by the end of 180 days, you're ordered to shut that thing down. You, you cannot keep a preliminary inquiry open indefinitely. Where a full investigation can go on for years if you can articulate that the person is an agent of foreign power. And some of these cases do go on for years. You know, they go, they go on for a long time. You know, when we talk about even Qatar uh, and the Islamic army in Chechnya, and why we talk about it is because there is a link between uh, Al-Qaeda and, and them and September 11th is in because it is alleged that Khalid Al-Madar and Nawaf al-Hazbi actually served uh, in the Chechnya war, uh, allegedly served in the Chechnya war. And that's a direct link between Al-Qaeda, Chechnya, and the attacks. And they were considered the most veteran Al-Qaeda operatives in the September 11th attacks. Yes, I, I agree with you. And, you know, but, you know, when you look at it, like when I'm when I'm when I'm describing to you and your audiences, our initial investigation into uh, 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 Subra and Al-Sharbi and the guys that were basically the main targets of the Phoenix memo, uh, that was all new stuff. We were just all learning this stuff. I mean, we did not know what this how how extensive this network was and, and the countries that they were operating. And we were we were just learning all this stuff. You know, so it was like uh, intelligence information that was coming in was incredible. I mean, you know, and, and, and government was trying to play catch up. We had to retool the way we looked at things in the past. I mean, because remember what I told you earlier, we pretty much had things stovepipe into different categories. And now we were looking at this thing that trans that, that, that goes across these stovepipes and we got to figure out what it's called. You know, and, and, and we got designated a foreign power. I mean, the, the National Command Authority, the president, the secretary of state and all those people got to agree with it and say, yeah, this is a national. Uh, these are foreign powers and they're a threat to national security. Right. And just to just to touch on that, too, about what the FBI, because it seemed like the FBI was at the <coughs> low end of the stick here in regards to the sharing of intelligence. And for example, I, I recently um, interviewed Mark Rossini of Alex Station in which, you know, the infamous story behind him is that the CIA, in which he worked as a part of the Bin Laden issue station, um, even when he was working under that umbrella with the CIA, information was basically not even shared with the FBI. So in regards to people like such as yourself, you're just going on the intelligence from either informants because you weren't getting any actual help from any outside agency. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think that's very fair. And, you know, I'll take it even a step further. I, I'm a real proponent that what, what, something currently needs to be done to rectify that. I mean, back in the 70s, we had the Frank Church Committee hearings where mm -hmm. he attacked the intelligence community, and it resulted in some good things. It actually resulted in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and everything that went with that. Yeah, you know, it's been a long time before the U.S., since the U.S. intelligence community has had a going over uh, and, and it really needs to be looked at again, because that's unacceptable. And, you know, Mark tells that story. Every FBI agent that is worth their salt that has worked this stuff for years will also be able to tell you similar stories. There, there, there needs to be total transparency between agencies. And when you see talking heads on, in front of Congress and on the news say that that exists, that's, I, I, I call the BS card on that, because each working agents will tell you that they've encountered pushback from the CIA and it, particularly from them with getting accurate information on things that, you know, they'll give it to you when they want to give it to you, but it, 
And I'm not saying individuals in, in that agency are, are malicious. The agency is created, I believe, and this is just my opinion because I was not an employee of that agency. I was an employee of the FBI. But they are built to, they're so compartmentalized, you know, for security reasons and for correct reasons. Because if you get a spy in there, I mean, they could just totally destroy the whole agency. So I understand the compartmentalization. But sometimes that works against us with respect to information sharing. So I'm not saying they're doing things maliciously to prevent them from giving us information, but their their culture is such that they compartmentalize things for their own security, uh, so they don't jeopardize other operations and so on and so forth. That sometimes it works against the broader intelligence community, and we don't get the information. So that's why I'm saying that the intelligence committees of the Congress uh, need to need to look at all that stuff in the future. If they stop fighting with each other over silly stuff and get back to doing the work of the people and actually conducting their oversight functions seriously and call retired agents in and retired case officers in and say, hey, what can we do to help? Hey, this, I, I, I have a whole laundry list of things that I think they could help with. You're, you're, to go back to the memo, your memo was actually sent to some of the more prominent agents in the country in counterterrorism, one of them being uh, Dave Frasca um, and Rita Flack. Frasca actually was the uh, chief of the Minnesota Radical Fundamentalist Unit, um, mm -hmm. who ended up detaining Zacharias Moussaoui for a possible connection to the terrorism attack inside the United States. However, the, the arresting officer was Harry Samet, and he wanted to issue a FISA warrant to open his laptop and search his belongings. Um, when you sent that memo to Frasca, what was his response to you regarding the memo? I, I got no response from anybody from Washington on that. And you know what? I, I never blame anybody for that. And I've testified before the Joint Intelligence Committee and before the 9-11 Commission that I do not hold anybody in contempt for not handling that communication at the time. And the reason why I say this is this, Adam. I mean, I understood that at the time that I sent that in, that this was a, a theory that I was proffering up to the broader, to be discussed with the broader intelligence community. Uh, you know, basically I was asking, I was say, I was stating my observations, which were, hey, we see an inordinate number of individuals that have this radical, radical ideology that are currently or have studied civil aviation related material in schools in the state of Arizona. I said, and I, you know, and I think, you know, I came to the conclusion that I, I, I believe that bin Laden was getting ready to do something with those people with that skill set. And I wanted that shared with the broader intelligence community to see if there was any other source reporting coming in from anywhere else in the country that would bolster my suspicions that this is what bin Laden was doing. So my paper was more of a theoretical, this is my observation. I want to discuss with the broader intelligence community. I want to see if, you know, we're on to something or do you think we're off base or are we just developing something for the very first time here? But because I, I sincerely believe that something was up. There's too many characters that had this type of radical ideology and they weren't afraid to say it back in the days before 9-11 that we're studying this type of stuff, you know. And I think within that communication, I had 10 individuals listed, but we had other cases that I referred to your audience earlier down in the southern part of Arizona that were studying school, that type of stuff in schools down there, whose investigations were open and closed. So 
And then I also understood that the individuals that I was sending it to at headquarters were also dealing with real lifetime threats to the country, uh, both CONUS-wise, continental U.S. side, and to embassies and facilities overseas. And they were also engaged in real operations that were going to render terrorists back to the United States after they were captured. So if they got to it, they were going to get to it later. There was not an immediate push to get this you know, action done on this information. I asked them to accumulate a listing of, uh, you know, student visa holders for people from that area of the world, you know, the Middle East and other Muslim nations that were coming to the United States to study that type of stuff. And I understood there and I articulated it within the communication. I believe that part of the communication was redacted, uh, that I understood that this was putting forth certain legal concerns too. You know, you know, I knew that this was going to be perceived as racial profiling paper. And, you know, I was going to get some legal pushback on this, too. But this is I was just reporting my observations. I'm not seeing you know, I'm not concerned about the Irish Catholic kid that's studying planes right now. There's a lot, you know, with with uh, an IRA attitude because I didn't see them. I just did not see the IRA, you know, doing that. But I, I was specifically talking about radical Muslims with uh, Sunni uh, Islam, you know, that were taking this type of course. So uh, it didn't get looked at until after the uh, the attacks, unfortunately. Right. But, uh, I just, uh, I, I'm, I was chomping at the bit here because I want to defend your theory is mm. that I, 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 I believe so that the FBI, you had, had merit regarding the information regarding the memo only because, and if you're familiar, you're probably familiar with the Bajinka plot of 19. Yes. Mm -hmm. in, in, in regards to the Philippines, investigator, lead investigator, Rodolfo Mendoza, his mm -hmm. information came from the uh, one of the associates of, of Ramzi Yusuf, the uh, proprietor of the uh, of the uh, Bajinka plot, Abdul Hakim Murad. And Murad is actually telling his interrogator, uh, Rodolfo Mendoza, that the operation involved a hijacking of an American plane and crashing it into CIA language. So mm -hmm. it wasn't like your theory would just came out of nowhere. It, it mm -hmm. definitely had merit to regard with it. Mm -hmm. um, so why, why I, I still can't understand why nobody even gave this uh, scenario any type of serious uh, validity at all. Yeah. Adam, I ask that question every day myself too. I, I, I don't understand it either. I guess you would have to, we would have to ask the people that were, you know, especially in CIA and whatnot, uh, if it even made it to them from my FBI headquarters, um, and I'm not even certain when it actually made it to the CIA. I, I really don't know to this day if it, you know, if it ever got over to them. But I mean, because I would think that would trigger some alarms because they would want to know the names of these people, you know, and and uh, and uh, what you know, run their names through databases. We did checks through their databases with some of these guys, and it came back negative. You know, it came back. But, you know, like I always tell everybody, you know, I, I even testified before the Congress on this. It's there's the first time that somebody's name gets entered into any government database. Mm -hmm. You know, with these two guys, it was the first time, you know, now they'll ever forever be in databases and all the people that we developed after that. You know, some of these guys like Riot Abdullah, who was a friend of Hani Anjur, you know, he was like a part time imam, if you will, at the Islamic Center of Tucson. You know, he lied to us about his knowledge of Hanjur, too. You know, and then he admitted it. So we didn't charge him. We put him before the grand jury in the Southern District of New York. And right after he testified, he fled the United States. He went back to uh, Saudi Arabia. You know, so uh, and then the next place we see him back, in, I believe it was the year 2006. He's down in New Zealand 
trying to learn how to fly, acting goofy. And then, you know, his flight instructor reports it to the equivalent of their FAA, who reports it to the equivalent of the New Zealand FBI. Next thing you know, they're putting two and two together and they say, hey, this is a guy that was up in Phoenix flying around with Honjur, they were studying with Honjur, you know, and they kicked him out. It was only the second time they used a certain act in the country of New Zealand to expel somebody from their country. The first guy they employed it on was a KGB agent. And then they took this guy and the, it went right to the prime minister and the prime minister get him out of the country. And and they and they put him back in the Saudi Arabia where he went through a re-education program and God only knows what he's doing now. So, uh, you know, I know that, that digresses off your original point, but I, oh. I, you know, I don't know. I, what if it to death, what would have happened, you know, cause, and, and, you know, that's, that's where the whole arson thing comes in there because I would have got that communication out earlier right. okay. if I was not delayed on the arson case. And, and then if I had not, re, you know, it was July 10th. You know, I've often been asked the questions, well, we never heard any follow-up from Ken after July 10th. Well, the attacks happened on September 11th. I mean, in, in the bureaucracy of the FBI, two months is not a long period of time. You know, I would have started making calls to New York, Washington. Hey, what, what have you guys done with my communication? I said, but, you know, you're looking at 60 days. By the time it gets to Washington, by the time analysts look at it, and their supervisors look at it, analysts look at it, you can be looking at a month and a half right off the bat there because we have three ways of labeling communications in the Bureau. It's routine, priority, and immediate. I labeled it routine, you know, because I had no specific threat information there at the time. I did not, I did not report that I believed they were getting ready to attack a building now, you know, because I didn't have that information. I just had a radical ideologies, people that with this radical ideology that were studying this type of material. I didn't have anything specific telling me that they were getting ready to do anything. You know, that's why I wanted to, I wanted to have a discussion with the broader intelligence community on this to see if there was any other information out there, you know, and that never, that never came to fruition, you know, uh, uh, and then, you know, the rest is history. They actually did have something going on and they did train in the United States and they were at flight schools in the United States and, and they, and they used it against us. Um, you, well, you already answered my next question, actually, uh, was that the CIA, the CIA claimed that they never got the Phoenix yeah. memo. However, according to Lawrence Wright, the author of The Looming Tower, he actually reported in the book that the memo was indeed sent to the CIA's bin Laden issue station, issue station and that the source for this was actually Mark Rossini, who mm. claimed that it was. Uh, but you never sent them the, the, the uh, no. memo? We didn't, we didn't, back in those days, we did not have a direct method to do that. You know, at, at a local field office, like in Phoenix, we, we, we had, we would go through like their base in like uh, uh, their station in Los Angeles to get that done. But even we, we wouldn't even do that then. It would be, it would be like, if they came out and visited us, I would say, hey, this is, I got this here, take a look at this. The way it would normally work back in the days before 9-11 would be, I would send it to our Washington headquarters and I would ask them, to send it to right. the CIA and do it there. Now we're post 9-11, we're joined a lot more at the hip and, and information could get shared face-to-face -face in most field offices with our counterparts there. And, and, and things go uh, a lot quicker. You know, it doesn't mean that we always get the answers we want to hear because of the compartmentalization on the other end, you know, but uh, I, you know, I, I've never encountered anybody 
uh, in that agency that would ever that had ever been malicious to any request that I made. I mean, they're patriots just like the rest of us, and and they do a damn good job, you know. And, and uh, it's just sometimes compartmentalization, bureaucracy gets in the way of uh, information sharing. Dur- during that year of two thousand one, were were you was the Phoenix FBI office made aware? that there were foreign intelligence rings operating inside the United States who were also monitoring the Al-Qaeda operatives who were constantly, no, no? I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I was not, and I would have been made aware of it because I, I had some significant investigations going on in the field office at the time. I had never seen such a document. You know, a lot of times, Adam, again, this is the pre-9-11 uh, uh, optic on things right. a lot of times stuff like that was shared with the bigger field offices like new york los angeles chicago and we were we weren't considered a very big field office at the time and that and that's a knock on our my organization as well is that a lot of times those type of offices they call them the big offices at the time looked at littler offices like phoenix and said well what do they know you know they're out in the middle of the desert you know you know we we've been looking at bin laden for years or we've right. you know, in the case of new york or whatever you know and it's say well listen you know you know we we're not dummies we know what's going on we follow the things that are going on and you know, quite frankly, if you, if you guys really knew your stuff too, you'd know that the first offices of the foreign, you know, Afghan services bureau were right. in Tucson, <laughs> you know, so it was no, it was, you know, when, when we found out that there was a, a Phoenix nexus to 9-11, like right after 9-11 took place where Honduras and Ohosmi were in Arizona, it was no surprise to me because I was very familiar with everything you stated earlier about the, you know, the Afghan services bureau being stood up in Tucson. I mean, and, you know, all the characters that you pointed out, we, we, we knew of them after, you know, before 9-11, we knew of them, all right, because we started really looking into this whole Al-Qaeda thing. You know, I remember when I got the first communication on Al-Qaeda and this bin Laden guy, it was, and it was, it came to us through Jordan, you know, and, and the Jordanians were explaining to us who this guy was and what this was all about. And I said, man, this is fascinating, you know, and, and, uh, you know, it was it was after 9/11 that we start really started delving into the Tucson thing. We actually did a real good paper on it, and we identified all those people that you articulated earlier, and then subsequently found out where they went on in the organization. You know, another guy that was down there was a guy, an Iraqi scientist by the name of Mubarak El Dori. And if you look at George Tennant's book, I of the Storm, he mentions Mubarak El Dori as being, you know, a member of the Islamic Center Tucson and a former U of A student. And you know, he was. Uh, agency back in the day considered him one of al-qaeda's weapons of mass destruction guys you know you know but uh, for years they lied they, they didn't tell us that they knew anything about him and, and then when 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 i because i would ask about this guy and then when i read Tennant's book after he retired i went i went into their station and i said look at you guys have been telling me you don't know this guy he's he's on page 487 of your former boss's book you know, you know, it was one of those things. But again, I don't think it was anything malicious on their part. I think it's because of the compartmentalization that, you know, that, that, that made the bureaucracy very, you know, like a quagmire. I mean, I, I, I've never met anybody intentionally that lied to me or was being malicious and not sharing information. I think, again, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I think it's because of compartmentalization that sometimes things fall through the crack. And that's what I crack. And that's why I think that Congress needs to really review, you know, the intelligence oversight committees need to really review that process to make sure that there is nothing slips by us again like that, you know, and, and we get hurt, we get hurt again. 
Uh, there's an interesting story. I want to know if you can uh, relate to it a little bit more for us uh, regarding on the day of September 11th, um, that while they were, the attacks were happening on TV, uh, there was an agent who actually was holding a file, George Pirro, uh, holding a file of Hani Anjur because Boston uh, actually called your office and told you to look into it. And Pirro actually says, I'm holding his file, actually. Well, George, George Pirro and I, I was with George when that happened. George right. and I were out of flight school and uh, we were literally conducting an interview of a female who ran the school and uh, they called us and we said, we literally are holding his file from the school. And that is the very first person that they mentioned to us as being somebody that they were concerned with. We had no prior knowledge prior to going to the school. Uh, it was one of the places that George and I had, it was relatively first on our list because it was closest to our office. And we went down there by Sky Harbor Airport in Phoenix. And, uh, you know, we said, hey, look, at you've heard what happened. We're out here to see if we can get any lists of Arab students that were, you studied here and do you have any concerns about any of them? Very first person on this woman's list was Hani Hanjur. And wow. as we're talking about Hani Hanjur, we're getting a call from back east asking us to go to this school and ask about this student. I said, well, we're right here doing that right now. And that's the very first person she talked to us about. There's a story in that, too. Right. Because that, 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 that person, I don't want to divulge her name for her right. privacy purposes, but it's a very much similar story to what took place in Minneapolis. This person was concerned about Hani Anjur to the extent before 9-11, months before 9-11, that she actually called the Federal Aviation Administration on this guy and thought she did her due diligence. And she did. She didn't. She doesn't know the ropes. I mean, those are the people that oversee her industry. And she, she reported to, to the FAA that this guy was there. He wasn't much of a pilot, but he was insistent on learning how to fly big planes. And it just rubbed her the wrong way. So she called the FAA. The FAA never alerted the FBI to this fact, huh. you know. So, so, so you know, you you're an expert on this stuff because I could tell by the questions you're asking. You know that the same thing happened with Musawi. You know, I mean, yes. you know, called them and then they notified the FBI, and that's how Sam and the guys got on the Musawi. You know, and, and so I mean, there the system worked. In Phoenix, it didn't work. The one branch of government did not contact us. I just have two questions left. Yeah. Actually, in 2000, now this is going to be a tough question to answer, yeah. but I'll take it any way you, you say it. Um, yeah. In 2002, the Justice Department report um, entitled The Review of the FBI's Handling of Intelligence Information Related to the September 11th Attacks. It's centered on three FBI failures before 9-11. One of those FBI failures to act on was your memo. In hindsight, what do you think you could have done differently to make them act on it? Or was it enough for them to do so? And if so, why do you believe they didn't act on it? Well, you know, again, in the pre-9-11 in the world, uh, it, this is very difficult for people that weren't in the Bureau to get it. But I mean, and I understand why the questions would be asked this way. It, 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 mine was not, yes, it was actionable, but it wasn't, it wasn't actionable in the standpoint like where, I had information saying an attack was imminent. We need to do this. We need to identify these people now because something's getting ready to go. You know, otherwise, in other words, I got a ticking time bomb information. Something's getting ready to go. I don't know when it's going to go, but it's going to go. I didn't have that. 
All I had was this theory, you know, that turned out to be right. All right. But they were dealing with real actionable things, you know, preventing terrorist attacks from taking place elsewhere in the world, you know, capturing other terrorists and bringing them back from other countries and bringing them back to the United States. Those were like things that were a higher priority for them at the time. You know, had I gotten this information in today's day and age with the restructure and the retooling of the FBI, I believe that it would have got acted on immediately uh, because in the post 9-11 world, I mean, not without getting into specific details, but we had similar type of information coming in regarding other industries and we were able to act on that and prevent things from happening. And one day, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, when history is written about the post 9-11 world, mm. you're going to see that the FBI in conjunction with our CIA uh, brothers and sisters did phenomenal things to stop terrible things from happening to this country because things were retooled. Things were looked at differently. I mean, you know, we were kicked in the, in the, in the, in the ass and we had to wake up and we had to deal with things differently to protect our country. I mean, certain rules that were in place uh, before 9-11 were removed after 9-11 and we were able to be more effective and more efficient. Uh, legislation was enacted, the Patriot Act that allowed us to do other things that we weren't able to do before 9-11. And, and, and so I, I can tell you that, that there's going to be some really good stories written in, 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 in the future uh, about successes. So I don't know if that answers your question, but, but it's like, uh, you know, I, I can tell you, if, if I had the opportunity to write that memo a year earlier, where I wasn't stuck on that arson case, because mm-hmm. I would have wrote, wrote it, I would have wrote it, I would have been making calls saying, what are we doing about this? And even if I had a start on my own, just based in Phoenix, I would have been out to all the flight schools in Phoenix with my team, with George Pirro and other guys, and we would have been out there doing that, you know, but we were all distracted to put on this arson case, and that never happened. Uh, in, in my opinion, I have to stand up here. In my opinion, I, I, did, I think there was more than enough actual intelligence in the memo itself, only because of the history involved going back, as I said to you before, regarding the Bajenka plot, that there were warnings that they, they were interested in using airliners to crash into sensitive American territory. Sure. I, 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 I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, I, I, I do agree with you. So my my uh, my final question is actually the as a recent the FBI's office of the general counsel told you not to cooperate with attorneys representing 9-11 victims in their suit against the kingdom of Saudi Arabia because it could harm U.S. Saudi relations. Yet you just returned from assisting the lawyers involved with the victims families in this case. Tell us about it. Well, yes. I mean, in, in, uh, I retired from the FBI after 30 years in May, May, uh, May 31st, 2017. And in October of 2017, I was in uh, Union, New Jersey, watching my niece who was going to the police academy over there, competing in a a police department run. And I got a telephone call from one of the lead attorneys from Kreinler and Kreinler in New York City, who represents the victims Mm. of 9-11. And they asked me if I'd be willing to help assist them as an investigator and a consultant on their uh, civil litigation on behalf of the victims and the victims' families targeting the government of Saudi Arabia. And I said, sure, I would be, but let me check with my former employer first. You know, Adam, after being an FBI agent for 30 years and primarily handing classified information at the secret level and above the highest classifications of secrets that this country has, you know, you get indoctrinated 
you know, into, you know, I can't talk about anything, you know, type of thing. So I didn't want to put myself in any type of legal jeopardy. So I contacted my former employer and at the Phoenix level first, my, my chief division counsel. And I said, I've been asked to help the victims of 9-11 through their attorneys. What do you think? I, I want to do it. And they said, hey, sounds good. Let me get back with you. And I, I got a call from a female from the Office of General Counsel, which is, for your viewers, the, the legal branch of the FBI that handles everything legally in, in the FBI. They, had, they, they, they you know, tell us what we can do and what we can't do. And I was told by this woman that they didn't want me to cooperate with the victims and their attorneys because of A, the current administration wants to have good diplomatic relations with the Saudi Arabian government, very broad uh, comment nothing specific. And then secondly, that my cooperation could have um, uh, damaging effects on ongoing national security investigations. Again, very broad, uh, nothing specific. So that being said, I reluctantly had to call them back, the attorneys back. Mind you, I still hadn't got my pension yet. I've only been out of the bureau for five months. And not that they ever threatened me with my pension. They did not. But knowing how government works, I said, man, if I if I don't do what they're asking me to do, that could impact it. So I, I politely told them, no, I couldn't help them for the reasons I just cited to you and your audience. Thank goodness. I, you know, I, I felt horrible when I did that. It stood on me, it weighed on me very heavily for months. And out of the blue, they contacted me back and they said, hey, look, we really like your cooperation. Have you reconsidered? And by that time I had got my pension and I said, yes, I feel like I've, I've I've been slime. I slimed you guys. I, I felt like I'd been slimed mm. and I felt like I slimed you guys. I said, I, I feel horrible. I want to help. And I just felt for those months, those interim months when I wasn't helping the time I ended up deciding to help them, I just felt that it was unconscious. It, it's unconscionable that somebody from the United States government, my former employer would tell me not to assist the victims of the largest murder that happened in this country's history. And I thought that is just wrong on the face of it. I said, first of all, I, I ran it through my head. I said, what are they assuming? And are they thinking that I'm going to do something illegal? I mean, I've never, I, you know, I'm not going to violating any, I'm not going to violate any national security laws by discussing the secret things with attorneys. First of all, these attorneys would never ask me to do that. And then secondly, you know, I just felt like I felt offended that they thought that I would do something to violate my oath of office and violate the laws of the United States by giving the plaintiff's attorney something that I shouldn't give them. I'm saying you have no confidence in me or whatever. But then I, 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 it just made me angry, you know. So I've been working with them since, uh, since you know, and uh, 2018. And in September 2018, I wrote a declaration explaining everything that I just told you and your audience. And I swore to it under penalty of perjury that this is what happened. And, and uh, you know, and, and afterwards, I decided that I was going to help them. And I've been working with them now for the past three years. And I'm telling you, during the course of my investigation and with other team members, you know, I've seen things that I can't talk about because of the protective order. Right. But it certainly demonstrates to me that the FBI did not complete its job, that there are more things that need to be looked at. There's people that should be prosecuted. You know, at least let a jury hear the story. And if it's there, it's there. If it's not, it's not, you know, but I think it's there, you know, based upon my training and experience. 
and uh, we need to close the loop. Now, in the FBI's defense, I will say this, Adam, and I tell people this every I'm not a disgruntled FBI employee. For those FBI agents that know me that are listening to this, they're going to be very surprised to see that I'm talking to you, okay, or I'm talking to any media people about this stuff because I'm a, I was a, a you know, a, a, an agent that played by the rules and, and still play by the rules, but I took my work seriously and I did not talk about it with anybody, okay? But what I've seen happen in this case, I just think is playing out wrong, all right? And, and, and things need to be rectified. It's the largest murder that's ever happened in this company, country. You know, and people say terrorists, people call it attacks. You know, when they start interjecting all this national security stuff, it gets lost in this, this, this blur of secrecy and everything else. So what I try to always bring people back to the central thing is, is this is murder. This is brutal murder of 3,000 people on one day. It's murder. We would never let a drug cartel get away with this. We would never let the mafia get away with something like this. We should not let the Saudis get away with something like this. Mm. You know, and, and, and I'm not saying that the king sanctioned this. I'm not saying that this was something. But, you know, but I'm telling you, people within that government are culpable for things that took place. Okay. And I think they need to be held accountable for it. And, so, and, just, and just as I said to you before we started recording, uh, they just uh, dep- uh, gave a deposition order to unnotable uh, Saudi officials, Fahad al-Tumeri, Omar al-Biumi, Osam Bastan, and um, al-Jara, I always forget his first name, yeah. um, that they are to be uh, depositioned. And I think this is a great groundbreaking because 9-11 Commission actually did go and interview Fahad al-Tumeri in Saudi Arabia. And they found in that report, I had the memorandum mm-hmm. I posted on my blog too, that, that they found him to be very deceptive during the interview. Yep. So, I, I, you know, this could be great. And your help in this matter is enormously invaluable. Well, I, I, pre- I appreciate it, Adam. You know, it, it is something that every American should, should really pay attention to. And I'm glad you're doing what you're doing on this because I'll tell you, you know, with the government still claiming state secrets and stuff like this on mm. certain aspects of this case, it angers me from this perspective. I don't claim I'm a, I was a small cog in a big intelligence wheel. I admit that I don't know all the answers to everything. I don't. But what I do know is this, that when rules and policies that are that, that are employed and used by the FBI, the CIA and whatnot, that were enacted to protect American secrets for the purposes of protecting the American public. All right, are now being used to hurt members of our public, people that paid a dear price on September 11th, then those rules and policies need to be changed. You know, and because the, the, the JASTA legislation that these victims and their families so bravely uh, got accomplished and enacted, you know, that, that in and of itself is another American story that's incredible. All right, that these people, these moms, these dads, these sons and daughters got together with their attorneys and they put together a piece of legislation that finally got through and got enacted a couple of years ago. That legislation is not worth is not going to be worth the paper it's written on if the government isn't commanded to hand over to the attorneys the the the, the secrets that they need to, you know, have a successful um, um, decision made in this case. You know, and the show, the dirty handedness of the certain Saudi government officials that you just mentioned, you know, I mean, again, because of the protective order, I can't talk about these things, but I've seen any reasonable person 
that looks at the evidence in its totality will come to the conclusion that there is more uh, that satisfies, you know, uh, a civil judgment in favor of the of the victims here, you know, and and, and it needs to, it needs to take place. What? Well, why do you just said I, I hate to hold you hostage for a little? No, bit. you're not holding me hostage. Uh, um, uh, in regards to the trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the Guantanamo Five, what is taking so long? You know, I don't know. That's a great question. I, I really don't know because, like I said, my friend, uh, my subject from Prescott, Kassan Al-Sharbi, is one of those guys. Right. He's down there, too. He's, he's been down there since 2002, you know, with Abu Zubaydah, you know, arrested during the gun shootout with Abu Zubaydah. Uh, I don't know what's taken so long. I, I can assure you that, you know, all politics aside, you know, people, once they get into that Oval Office, realize that there's some bad people down there and they can't close Guantanamo and they can't let these people unloose in the world again because they will kill us again. They will try to hurt us again. So to answer your question, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think that would be a question we'd have to ask uh, people who, who you know, are in power right now to, hey, when's this going to go forward? You know, you know, when are we going to get some justice and when are they going to be sentenced officially? Do you do you fear that if if the trial does come to petition, do you fear that the admissions made under duress or torture could be thrown out? You know, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how that's going to work. I, you know, I, I don't know. I do fear that that could be a possibility, but I, I, I don't. Everything that came out, in my opinion, what I've read uh, was accurate, you know, and things were prevented, you know, and things were stopped. You know, and I think it gets into, again, this this topic of secrecy and we start talking about, hmm. you know, uh, intelligence type work and, you know, where, where the line between intelligence and law enforcement gets blurred. You know, it's uh, it, it gets muddy. It gets really ugly. But what I would like what I would like to say, and I used to say this to FBI Director Mueller at times, too, who I consider a great man. And I think he did a lot of great things for the FBI, you know, and, and I can I would consider him a friend. You know, it, it's we're like the only agency in the world the FBI, when I say it, that wear two hats, we wear that intelligence hat and we wear the law enforcement hat. And I would, I would like to think that I think a lot of this stuff that we're talking about today, when it comes to 9-11 has been overclassified, you know, and it's been, it's been overclassified. And I think the country, and this is what I mean by where Congress should do some more oversight to try to get us up into the 21st century. It's like, a lot of this stuff doesn't need to be classified at the level it's classified at, which murkies, murks up the water and which, which, which makes it difficult for, you know, civilians and these plaintiffs to get accomplished what they want to get accomplished. I mean, I think we need to go back to the basics and look at this as a classic murder investigation. This was a murder, you know, and, and you could take all the fancy terrorist talk away, all these fancy cloak and dagger stuff, you know, the CIA away, NSA away everything else. At the end of the day, we had a group of people that were organized that killed 3,000 of our citizens. And we should not hide behind secrecy to protect whatever political interests we have with another country or whatever. We, we need to take care of our own citizens first. You know, otherwise, uh, what are these, what are our organizations for? What is the FBI for? What is the CIA for? If we're going to be protecting the interests of another government before we protect the interests of our own citizenry. You know, and I, I, that's where I have a hard time with this all. And that's why I agreed to help these people out to begin with, you know, because when government agencies, in my opinion, start to feel like they're a government within a government and they know 
I mean, sometimes I think they forget that they work for you and they work for me and they work for all these victims and these citizens of our country. I mean, you know, that that's first. When I swore my oath of office to the FBI, it was to protect us, our, our citizens, our families, our fellow countrymen, you know, and, and not another government, you know, and, and their employees. I mean, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and not even our relationship, our diplomatic relationship with them. You know, I would submit to you that, in my opinion, and I'm just a a normal Joe now, it's like, I think that country needs us more than we'll ever need them. And, 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 and I think we should stand up and tell them that and say, Hey, look at, take responsibility for the actions of your employees 20 years ago. And, and let's move on, turn the page, let's make friends again. And, and let's move on, let's move forward, you know, and, and get this behind us, get this sorry chapter behind us. What are you doing today these days, Ken? Well, today, my primary mo focus is to, to, to work with these attorneys and to help, you know, uh, uh, them get justice and get a, get a positive judgment. I'm also working with a group, another group of FBI agents. It's called Tolhurst International. And uh, we do security consulting work and we do private investigative work. But this, I've told my team, my guys, and they, and they give me a lot of leeway because this is what I'm doing for the victims and their attorneys is, is, has nothing to do with the company I'm affiliated with. I told them, guys, if you don't have a problem with me, because I started working on this stuff before I joined this group, the other group, I said, this is my first passion here, this 9-11 case. I was involved with this before 9-11. I worked it all through 9-11, obviously. And then now I've been given the privilege to help them get justice against the Saudi Arabians uh, uh, post 9-11. So something, something tells me that you've been wanting to talk for a very long time. I have. It's just, it's just very frustrating. And, and I, you know, it's like I've told my coworkers at the at Kreinler and Kreinler, I said, even when this is all said and done, I would like to be able to get the ear of a senator that is on the Intelligence Committee mm -hmm. and just po point out to him or her uh, that they need to really seriously look at things that the FBI is doing and that the CIA is doing uh, to, to make sure that this doesn't happen again. You know, and, and, and I'm saying I don't think a lot of this stuff is being done maliciously. I think a lot of this stuff is being done because there's rules and policies in place that need to be updated and changed and, and, uh, and you know, so that they protect the American people and not the, any government, any foreign government, you know, and our, and our alliance with that foreign government, because once those rules hurt us, the, the American people, then there's something wrong with that rule <laughs> because yeah. all the rules for these agencies should be designed to protect the American people, not, not, not some other country. That's my own opinion, Adam. It's just throw Ken, that out to you. Ken, I want to say thank you very much for doing today's uh, talk. And um, thank you very much, really. Hey, thank you, Adam. I